Well, hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. We are here for episode two of the original. My name is Jordan, and I'm here with Nate Petzl, lead pastor of Faith Chapel. Last week, we talked through the essence of the church and did our best to get to the root of what the church is supposed to look like, which is disciples making disciples through relationships. It was a great first episode, so we would recommend that you start there and then continue through the series. This week, we're going to ask, where are we and how did we get here? From the vision of the church and what was set in motion back in 33 AD, we've seen a lot of different iterations of the church. So Nate, to begin, I want you to maybe summarize again in your words, why the church at all? What was set in motion back in 33 AD? Jordan, why the church? Well, when Jesus initiated all of this, uh, he gave his group of followers this, this commission and it was going to all the world, make disciples of all nations, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. So how do you do that? I mean, it's a huge assignment. Um, how is it accomplished? Well, what's interesting is he didn't leave behind this uh, schematic in terms of, and you'll establish these things, move to national headquarters. Instead, it was this incredibly grassroots organization, and it grows and spreads uh, through people doing exactly that, going. So it's this verb-oriented uh, commission, and they're making disciples. So as disciples, when we talked about this idea that, is there another word other than Christian? only used three times in the New Testament that might describe the followers of Jesus. And we talked about that idea of a disciple, one who follows the rabbi. So it was people following their rabbi, Jesus, inviting others to follow the rabbi with them. And so the church has very little structure. Now, we know these original apostles, the 11 that, that remained, uh, they took positions of leadership, but they were actually disciple makers as well. So you have from the upper tiers of leadership all the way to brand new people involved in this commission of going to make disciples. Great. So from that, what was originally set in motion, we now have seen history. We've had so many different looks and feels and practices in the church from the Roman Catholic Church to uh, where we are today with this Western church. And so would you maybe speak a little bit to the history um, and maybe even the Western church? What's different about the Western church from some of the historical things we've seen? What's good about it? And then maybe a little bit, what's bad? How did, how did we get here from that original vision? Jordan, I think church history is always... There's two sides to it, because in one sense, if you just look backwards over the last 2,000 years, there would be all these beautiful moments. Some of the most significant cultural breakthroughs, some of the most significant uh, things having to do with arts, um, were intertwined with people being disciples of Jesus. And so you've seen this movement of, in, in, in our lifetime, extreme poverty has been, uh, it's been disappearing literally in large part because of the Christian church, uh, caring, seriously taking these words of Jesus that we're going to care for the poor and the needy. So there's these beautiful things, but then you look back and you'd also see plenty of dysfunction over the last 2,000 years. I mean, people would typically say, well, how about the Crusades and the Inquisitions right. and these type of things? So the, the Christian church, I wish I could say it was all beautiful and rosy. But it hasn't been. There's been some low points. There's been some difficulty. So how did that change? Well, 
313 AD, when Constantine went through a process where he decided he was going to abandon the Roman gods of his ancestors and adopt this new Christianity. And at that point, somewhere between 10 and 20% of the Roman Empire had already become disciples of Jesus. Well, when he did that, things definitely changed. The first 300 years were really filled with his discipleship church structures. We don't. We, we only have like two examples in the first 300 years of the church. So their emphasis wasn't on staying and building structures. Their emphasis was on going, dissipating throughout the Roman Empire, finding people to love. We talked about love being the hallmark of a disciple. Well, something happens in 313, which I think would be exactly what we talked about in church history. It, there's some beautiful things to it, but then there's some downsides too. Well, when all of a sudden the Roman Empire says, we will be disciples of Jesus, now you have this merging between discipleship of Jesus and Roman constructs of government and power. So it is only a few years into this where hierarchy begins to be established in terms of church leadership, which interestingly probably mirror political hierarchy more than anything else. So you have the advent of one man who leads the church. You have uh, bishops and cardinals underneath that. You have the buildings uh, that are, start creeping up everywhere, which we could say those are beautiful. People still go to Europe to visit them. However, it did change the nature of the spread of Christianity. Um, now you have designated people who are missionaries. Now you have monks who practice the spiritual disciplines and maybe others think they don't need to. So you have this segmenting and Christianity at that point probably lost some of that grassroots orientation that led to its <laughs> rapid expansion. So now you have professional clergy. Um, and now you have people deciding uh, exactly what people should believe about maybe um, rather per peripheral issues. Mm -hmm. And so that seems to be at least one of the major changes. And so we're the product of that. Here we are. So the, I think the question is, Jordan, how do we maintain this idea of being disciples of Jesus while living in our culture? One of the amazing things about the Christian church is, and well, this would be more about the message of Jesus, is that it adapts to every culture. Uh, because Jesus... He gave us the teachings. He gave us this, what we call the gospel or the good news. He gave us this clear calling that we're supposed to be uh, distinguished by our love for people. But here's what, what's amazing. You can go anywhere in the world, and the message of Jesus applies to people's lives. We're talking about tribal societies, and we're talking about our most complex cosmopolitan societies, is that what Jesus did applies to all. And then the church takes, it, it forms out of that. And so it's fascinating to see different ways that the church functions, maybe in, oh, I've been able to visit places like Africa. Um, and then how the church can function in a place like New York City. Mm -hmm. It thrives in both places. So you, you mentioned this segmentation of almost roles, maybe you'd call them, where you've got professional clergy uh, in missionaries and these different people that have been categorized by what they do, would you say that that's a place that the church has drifted and gone away from what Jesus intended? Or would you say that there's something uh, 
maybe redeemable is the word or benefits of having a specific focus, a specific goal for different people? Well, it would probably be deeply ironic if I said there shouldn't be any people right. who are professional <laughs> clergy because that's exactly what I am. But here's what I think is very, very concerning is that this idea that everyone was a disciple who made disciples, um, it, that can be lost when we distinguish people as, well, this person's a missionary. So here's the challenge. If I think, oh, a missionary is somebody who travels across an ocean and engages a group of people who do not know who Jesus is, and they begin to love, and they begin to show, and they begin to live out discipleship in front of them. If I think, oh, that's a missionary, and me going to the hospital on Monday morning or to the classroom or to the job site or out into the oil fields, I'm then a missionary, that's where we have a challenge. I don't think it's wrong. We need people who have unique gifts to go to sure. new places. But if I say, well, but that's not who I am. Right. Or uh, it only it's only it's only the the professional clergy that make disciples. Well, they create classes. They're the ones with all the information. That's where we become impoverished. Is that we have to remember that everyone, even if there is a layer of leadership and bureaucracy, that in its truest form, Christianity believes that every human being who follows Jesus has the capacity and ha is equipped to make disciples in their specific context. Yeah. So, and another thing is we've developed churches where we, we tend to say, hey, come to the church, and at the church is where you'll hear the message of Jesus. I think that robs the gospel of part of its power. I think the best place for someone to hear the message of Jesus is in a living room. Hmm. So that actually segues perfectly into the next question. Mega churches and small churches, we've got all across the country and even around the world, these dynamic, uh, huge buildings, huge structures. You've got campuses, uh, satellite campuses all over the place, evidence of these very large churches and organizations that are structured um, away from living rooms and in different environments. And then you've got small churches. You've got grassroots churches around the country. You've got tiny churches in Montana. I mean, Montana is a great place to see small churches in rural communi communities where people drive for miles to, to come hear this, and that's a part of a, uh, our history. So the difference between a megachurch and a small church, what's the point? Are they reconcilable? Can they work together? Are they doing the same thing? Does that, make, does that question make sense? Absolutely. So, Jordan, the last statistics I saw, the average size church in America is 77 people. So for the most part, churches throughout America are well, they're under 100 people. Now, unfortunately, sometimes we see tension. Um, sometimes between the leadership of large churches and small churches, sometimes uh, the people that attend, um, they have uh, prejudices against a large church or maybe against a small church. And probably most of that comes from their own experiences. I don't think the size of a church matters. I think what we're looking for is the effectiveness of a church. Mm -hmm. So I have friends that do house churches, and I'm absolutely fine with that. I celebrate them. I think that's fantastic if they're effective, meaning a large church or a small church can become insular. It can become oriented towards itself. It can become judgmental. It can become isolated from the community, large or small. I think an effective church is a church that is building and making disciples 
and then sending disciples. It's an equipping church. So that can happen in a room of 25 people or in a room with 2,500 people. So I don't think large or small matters. I, I think part of that's people's preferences. Here's one thing I do know, just because of our context, context we're at a larger church, is I do not believe it would be healthy for someone to be a part of a large church and to simply attend a weekend service, and that was it in terms of their spiritual development. Sure. I think we're going to try to do everything possible to equip people to be disciples and make disciples. But I think we need to take our model from Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47, where we read this. It's the first description of, of the first century church. It says, and they met together um, at temple courts. So if you went to Jerusalem today on the south side, it, it still remains. It wasn't destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. There are these steps that come down from the south side of the temple wall. And the early church met together in large group. In fact, we know from Acts chapter 2 that 3,000 people were part of the first church. So it was a large church, but it didn't stop there. It said they met together at the temple, in the temple courts, and then they met together in homes. So I, I think to really be effective, every disciple of Jesus probably needs two things to help them in their... Actually, it'd be three. One is personal spiritual disciplines, where I'm not relying on somebody else to feed me spiritually. And so the capacity to read the Bible, to contemplate, to study it, to pray. The second thing would be, I think a good church is really helpful in your discipleship. It inspires you. It uh, challenges you. But the third element, I think, is is some sort of small group. And so uh, we as a large church, we're always pushing to be a group of small churches within a large church. So we, we have a little phrase internally. We say, we don't want to be a large church with small groups, but we want to be uh, a, a church of small groups. Mm. And so the hope is, is I really believe that the best growth, the best care, the best nurture, the best leadership will happen in a small group. I don't think that excludes the larger service, but I think they coordinate and they work together really well. Great. So you, you talked a little bit about this concept of any time a church or a group becomes insular and, and, and doesn't have... Um, any growth isn't isn't moving in the right direction is probably negative, and my question would lead us to: Is that how denominations were formed? That you started to get these small groups or these segments of Christianity that weren't rubbing together, that weren't uh, talking well, that weren't in good community, weren't referencing back? Is that how denominations were formed? How do we get to this place where? We have so many different concepts of practice, so many different concepts of what the church is supposed to be from this grand liturgy to grassroots movement. How how did we end up so divided? The questions of uh, denominations is always an interesting one because I think we've all had the experience of driving down a street somewhere in America and there's first church of such and such, and then a block away there's second church of such and such. <laughs> yeah. And you think, I bet there were one church at one time. Sure. What caused some group to leave and, and walk down the block and say, we need a new church because that one definitely isn't working. So denominations. First, I'll start with the positive. I think that 
in a good way, denominations can have unique personalities. So interestingly enough, if we went back to the Old Testament, when the people leave Egypt after these 400 years of slavery, they're divided into tribes and tribes inhabit different places, geographic regions in this promised land of Israel. And they were all meant, they were, they were one people group, but they had distinct characteristics. The, the tribe of Levi, they were responsible for temple worship. Uh, the tribe of Dan and Judah were war-oriented. They were kind of a soldier group. So I, I don't think that having denominations is always negative. There can be personalities. And I think denominations, for the people that are leading the churches, it's helpful to have accountability. Here's what I love about being a part of a family of churches. I've got accountability. Mm-hmm. I have relationships with people. Um, and, and then we, we have this sense of community, too. So that, I believe, is really healthy. Now, th- there, there are plenty of negatives about denominations. Sure. How did we get there? Well, Jordan, I w- I, two reasons, I think. First, I'll mention, remember Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciples by the way you love one another. I think a lot of splits in churches and the fragmenting into multiple denominations has to do with that's been one of the hardest things for us to do. And so say there's a tension in a church or a movement of churches. And if my if my response is I can't love that person because they like different music than I like, mm-hmm. or they want the service to be an hour and 15 minutes rather than two and a half hours. I think that's where some denominational splits come in, and it's over stylistic issues, and it's a lack of love. Sure. I think love means that I'm always going to be able to tolerate things that aren't my preference. Now, here's the second thing that led to, I think, the multiple denominations. The early church had to decide what was essential. Okay, this word gospel, good news. And so they, they came up with a Latin word called kerygma. Okay, kerygma was the essential teachings. You'll find this in the book of Acts. Um, there's all this confusion as the church is expanding and engaging new cultures. It's like, well, what are we going to do? Because there are people who live in Corinth who are now following Jesus, and most of us who originally started were Jewish by nature, and the Jews had all these cultural laws, laws of purity, uh, food laws, and now the people in Corinth, oh, they don't care about any of that. And so in the book of Acts, it's fascinating, it's called the Jerusalem Council, where they have to decide what's essential. Here's a big one, all right? It was circumcision, okay? To... to Hebrew culture, circumcision was absolutely essential. Well, try telling that to a Greek man who is living in Ephesus. He has heard the message of Jesus. It's revolutionized, revolutionized his life. He's now a disciple. He wants to make other disciples. But here comes a, a Jewish man who's known God for longer and says, oh, there's one important thing. Right. That we haven't talked about yet. You know, you just need a little operation. And then everybody that you ever talk to Jesus about, they need that little operation mm-hmm. as well. So the Jerusalem Council decided what is truly essential. And it's fascinating to me that they have this very small list. It has to do with um, circumcision doesn't make the list. Um, they narrow down this list to say, the cultural issues associated with Christianity that aren't essential need to be eliminated. Hmm. 
so this idea of kerygma, I think a lot of denominations split because we have defin- def- uh, different definitions of kerygma mm-hmm. or the essential truth. The, it's actually the irreducible truth. So imagine a box, okay? If in your mind, if you could just imagine a box, and in, in this box, it's a fairly small box, would be the kerygma, the essentials. What would need to go in there? What, what is absolutely essential about the message of Jesus in order for someone to be a disciple of Jesus. Okay. Now, imagine a box around that box. Now, these would be important but debatable issues. For example, maybe in the the smallest box, the essential box, we would put something down like the return of Jesus, Mm -hmm. that one day he's returning. That seems absolute from Thessalonians, from Jesus' own words. Now, when is he's returning? That's a whole different question, right? So that's probably in the uh, non-essentials in terms of the timing, right? But people get really attached to that. Yep. And so denominations have split over that. Well, he's obviously returning at such and such time, or after these things happen, or after a tribulation. Someone else will say, "Are you crazy? There's no way that can happen." And so I would say the essential is the return of Jesus. The debatable would be when it's happening. So if a debatable issue becomes part of the essentials, that's where churches Mm. split. That's where denominations happen. There there are two things that are really important. One would be the word orthodoxy, which is the the core of what we believe, kind of similar to that kerygma idea. And then the other thing would be orthopraxy, and that's how you practice things. So sometimes um, we should actually, I think all Christian churches should share orthodoxy. These are the essential things we believe. Orthopraxy is how I practice those Mm. things. So the practice can be varied. Um, You can have a church that is very, very traditional. Maybe they developed uh, their way of worshiping 800 years ago. And to them, that is core and essential. And you could have another church that says, hey, we actually believe all the same orthodox beliefs, but we have a more modern style of worship, a modern expression. So orthodoxy, orthopraxy, I think when orthopraxy becomes orthodoxy, how I do it, that's when churches split. Right. So then practically, we have, here we are, 2017, there are many denominations with their practice maybe becoming too important and causing tension, causing frustration, uh, even in some cases painting other believers in a bad light, other Christians in a bad light, to where, you know, the whole purpose of this podcast is the church has a different meaning, a different emotion to every person based on their background, their interaction with whatever denomination they grew up with, with whatever practice they've experienced often can really change their view, negative or positive, towards the church. So for us who would say, hey, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus, I want to take my orthodoxy, what I believe, and put it into practice in a healthy way, how can we begin to take steps and be a part of the solution with some of these muddy waters, some of this, these differences? How can we help return back to disciples, making disciples, and, and in the midst of all this denominational disagreement, and even in our current state of affairs of our country, and a lot of different opinions, a lot of different ideas rolling around in people's heads, what do we practically do to take steps towards loving each other well? And, and maybe it's that simple, but but in your opinion, what are some steps to help us be better practices of our orthodoxy? Jordan, I, I think this comes back to this whole idea of love. 
Um, Jordan, if, if we could find a way to love each other, remember Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciples by the way that you love one another. And I'll be the first to admit, a Christian church hasn't done that well as of late. So at a practical level, Jordan, if I can define what's the essential charisma, and I can say these are the non-negotiables, and anybody who has these same non-negotiables, and I think they'd be relatively few, surprisingly, I consider a brother or a sister, a fellow disciple. So the peripheral things, the stylistic things, the orthopraxy, personally, I, I think one practical thing we can do is I'm going to choose not to criticize. <laughs> if somebody is focusing on the essentials, I have an opportunity to do this just about every week. I, somebody will come to me and say, hey, I was part of such and such church, and boy, I didn't like it, and now I'm experiencing this. I'll look at them and I'll say, you know, I know people that go to that church, or I know the pastor, and they are good mm -hmm. people. I will never, ever join in criticizing another denomination. Just as a, a, a personal conviction, if somebody's a brother and sister, I'm going to love them. I don't see any other church, and maybe we could all do this, don't see any other church out there as competition. I, I see them as we're part of the same tribe. We may have different clans and different emphasis on different things, but we're part of the same tribe. And so there's no way we can we can war against each other. So just, just a, a loving disposition and choosing not to be critical or criticizing, I, I think... The mission is too important. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't think that you or I or anybody listening can afford to waste energy yep. in a battle with another believer. Mm -hmm. I want to be known by the way that we love each other. Mm -hmm. That means the person that's at the church you know, five blocks away and five miles away and the, the person that's at the home church and the person that's in the mega church and the medium-sized church, what if we could just really love one another? Mm -hmm. I, I think it creates something for culture where it's compelling. Yeah. I think that's why Jesus, Jesus brought that up. He said, this is how they'll know you're my disciples. And when you see people, in, in our day and age, when you see people genuinely love each other who are different and have mm -hmm. different values and emphasis, that's a beautiful thing. That, that compels, that draws. I think we have multiple instances in the um, in the New Testament and then in first century documentation that talk about the, this this love. It baffled Roman emperors. Um, they just couldn't figure it out. Julian, he can't figure it out. He's trying to bring back the worship of the old Roman gods. He says, but I can't do it because these Christians love everybody. They embrace the sick. They care for those who are wounded. They... they don't make room for anybody. They're really, really loving. And it makes it so difficult for me to bring back worship of the god Jupiter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I I think that even for me listening is challenging because in our in our culture right now it's so easy to be critical of everything and to surround ourselves with people who think like we do. And so anybody that's outside of that it makes us uncomfortable, frustrates us, and if they don't think like I do to criticize them, hoping to change them or for our own uh, maybe pride, I don't know what it is, but, but that critical thought process is so divisive, so that's, that's a great challenge. 
Thanks, everybody, for listening today. Tune in to the next episode as we dive a little deeper into what our role should be in culture. This should be a great discussion, so make sure to subscribe to get it delivered right to your device. And for our final episode, we'll be taking questions from you, and you can submit them to the original at faithchapel.cc, and we'll sort through them and tackle them during the final episode, which will be in a couple weeks. Thanks for listening.